0: In the second episode of the three-part series of Hard, produced by our WNYC colleagues at Death, Sex, and Money, the team dive into the scientific advancements that led up to Viagra's FDA approval in 1998, from an unforgettable conference presentation to an overnight drug study where an unexpected side effect kept popping up. Also, the intentionality around the early marketing of Viagra when former Senate Majority Leader Bob Dole encouraged men to summon the bravery to talk to their doctors and how that message has shifted over the years. Here's DSM host Anna Sale.
1: What was it like being able to talk with men who had struggled with erectile dysfunction and tried to manage it as a mental health problem that that you were able to say to them, actually, there's something going on physiologically that I think we can help you out with.
2: It's like they won the lottery. (laughs) I mean, you're not a man and you don't have a penis, but when it doesn't work, you challenge all aspects of your ego, your being, your self-worth. You you say, what did I do? (laughs) Am I guilty of something? What did I do wrong?
1: I'm Anna Sale, and this is Hard. A series from Death, Sex, and Money about Viagra.
0: Men worry about their erections all the time.
1: Erectile dysfunction. Abstinence does not make the heart grow fonder. And the ways we do and don't talk about sex, relationships, and our bodies.
3: I even went to therapy for a year and never really talked about it.
1: Viagra was approved by the FDA almost a quarter century ago, in the spring of 1998. It was the first oral pill to treat erectile dysfunction. Sex lives were going to be revolutionized. And who did Pfizer hire as their spokesperson? Former Republican Senator Bob Dole.
4: Courage. Something shared by countless Americans. Those
1: who risk their lives. Some of you might remember this commercial well. Others of you might be hearing about this for the first time. But this is how Senator Dole's Viagra commercial begins. He's sitting in what looks like a stateroom hallway, wearing a suit with a red tie.
4: When I was diagnosed with prostate cancer, I was primarily concerned with ridding myself of the cancer. But secondly, I was concerned about possible postoperative side effects. Like erectile dysfunction, E.D.
1: E.D., of course, has a myriad of causes, some physiological, some related to underlying mental health conditions, or both. Senator Dole had talked openly about his prostate cancer when he ran for president in 1996. A Time magazine article from that year describes him as speaking knowingly of the common surgery side effects of, quote, impotence and incontinence. You know, it's
4: a little embarrassing to talk about E.D., but it's so important to millions of men and their partners
1: and while there's a little bit of Pfizer branding on the commercial and a nondescript phone number to call for more information at the end, Senator Dole never says anything about Viagra. The point I want to make is
4: there are many treatments available for ED, so my
1: advice is get a medical checkup. This is not a sexy commercial. It feels like a PSA, encouraging men to summon the bravery to have hard, embarrassing, vulnerable conversations with their doctors. That also happen to be about sex. Of course, what happens when we're faced with something deeply uncomfortable? Yeah, that Viagra thing out? Yeah. And uh, you know, you don't want to
2: hear about Bob Girls' yeah. cock, you know?
1: <laughs> Ever since its inception, Viagra has been the subject of late night jokes. A trot of Viagra My tongue got hot. Many memorable ad campaigns, TV episodes.
3: What would happen if I tried one of
1: these? But hidden behind the Viagra punchlines are deeply personal stories and a pretty interesting history. One that, as we found out, has a lot of twists and turns.
5: If you look at the history of Viagra, it could have been lost maybe 10 or 15 times on the way.
1: In this second episode of our three-part series, we're gonna talk about how America got to know Viagra. And we'll talk with some of the people who helped create this little blue pill. But before we get into it, I just quickly wanna go back to Senator Dole who was in his mid-70s when he made that famous Viagra commercial. He was hired by Pfizer after speaking publicly about taking part in Viagra trials. Larry King even had him on his show to talk about living with E.D.
4: People are embarrassed to talk about it. It affects them and their partners. Were you embarrassed? Yeah, I was s- still am. I mean, it's something you don't run around, you know, sit around talking about in a coffee shop or particularly in a public television program.
1: There were two doctors also joining Senator Dole in this conversation about erectile dysfunction.
4: Maybe the two doctors could tell men who may be watching, who who are embarrassed about this, how's the best way to... Approach yeah. a doctor. I mean, how What can, is Dr. Did, Goldstein? How should you approach? It? Do you have a back door? Yeah. <laughs> Sneak <laughs> an impotence wing.
1: <laughs> yes, this is International Impotence <laughs> Education Month. It is. That's it is. Dr. Erwin Goldstein, a silver-haired yet youthful-looking urologist who had led oh, Pfizer-sponsored clinical trials of Viagra in the U.S.
4: Would you call it an amazing drug?
2: It, it really is. We've been waiting a long time, uh, the therapist for this field, but in particular humanity has been waiting for an oral pill.
1: Today, Dr. Goldstein is in his 70s, and he runs a clinic devoted solely to sexual medicine. I called him up at his home in San Diego. My
2: children have a saying: <laughs> Whenever I'm in company with them, someone looks at their watch and counts how many seconds it is till the word sex is mentioned. <laughs> like I embarrass all my children all the time.
1: Dr. Goldstein has parlayed his expertise in sexual health into lucrative consulting for drug companies. He earned more than half a million dollars from them in the last eight years, according to government records. He began developing his expertise back in the late 1970s, when his urology mentor became one of the first doctors to perform penile implant surgeries.
2: I became really fascinated by, you can take a flaccid penis, Press a button and uh, bango you're you you have axial rigidity, Uh Um, and I, (laughs) I remember asking, well, how the hell does an erection occur in the first place? He says, we have absolutely no idea. (laughs) So I said, okay, well, there's what I'm doing.
1: So just 40 years ago, doctors still didn't totally understand how erections or the penis worked. As we talked about in the last episode, problems with erectile dysfunction then were usually viewed as a psychological issue. If you went to the doctor for help, you'd most likely get referred to a counselor or therapist. But physicians like Erwin Goldstein started trying to figure out the mechanics of erections, how they happened, and why.
2: Boy, oh boy, it was uh, it was resistant to our understanding of the structure. She <laughs> would have thought... Most of the physiology of the body would have been understood by them. And we had to understand, for example, did a muscle need to contract to have an erection? Did it need to relax? I mean, all of those questions had never been addressed. And unlike most muscles of the body which live in the relaxed state, and then when you want to do something, the muscle contracts, the penis is this weird organ where... It's always contracted. I mean, you're, you, the muscles of the penis contract all the time unless you're in the state of erection.
1: So Hang on. I, I want to interrupt yeah. you because I, maybe other people are aware of this. People who have penises um, <laughs> might be more aware of this. I wasn't aware that an erection is actually the state of the muscle being relaxed. That's yeah, the opposite of what I would not. think. Okay. Yeah.
2: If you think of it like a sponge, because it's basically a sponge, the sponge is being run dry so that it stays out of the way so you can survive. But you do have to have it work so you can reproduce. The species requires two things, yeah. Reproduction and survivability. Those are your two sort of quintessential things you need to have a species that persists.
1: When had you learned that an erection is because of relaxation?
2: So, um, so you'll laugh at this one. 1983. I'm showing
1: Dr. Uh, Goldstein remembers that year particularly because of one very memorable scientific advancement. And to explain, I'm going to bring in our producer, Katie Bishop.
3: Okay, I want you to close your eyes and come back in time with me. It's Monday, April 18th, 1983. Come on, Eileen is at the top of the pop music charts. Flashdance has just opened in movie theaters. And... At the Las Vegas Hilton Hotel and Convention Center, the American Urological Association is having its annual conference. Dr. Goldstein is there, along with his wife, Sue.
2: We have a dinner meeting. People wearing tuxes and suits and, you know, uh, evening gowns.
3: Dr. Goldstein was one of the speakers at that fancy dinner meeting. He was slated to talk about his research, about how erections work. So, of course, because it's 1983, Dr. Goldstein goes to drop off his carousel of slides to the projectionist.
2: So as I'm going there, there's a British gentleman in, in a jogging outfit. I'm in my, of course, suit and tie, as is everybody. Um, he looked odd, and he gives in his uh, carousel. And I realize he's the first speaker. He's Giles Friendly.
3: Giles Brinley. Now, he's not a urologist. He's actually a physiologist, someone who studies the body and how it works. So, Dr. Brinley gets up on stage in his tracksuit and delivers his presentation about a muscle relaxant that he had learned caused erections.
2: And he shows uh, pictures of different angles of penile erection, so different, like, uh, uh, hardnesses of the penile erection. But they're his photos. He was taking drugs. Himself, These are unapproved things that he was taking. So it was sort of interesting and sort of vagus amusing at the time. But uh, it was fascinating because we all want drugs (laughs) to help our patients. But uh, with 15 minutes to go, he says the words, oh, hell, in a British sort of accent and takes his pants down in front of freaking everybody. (laughs) And he had this massive erection. And then I said, uh, and I have given myself an injection
5: shortly before the meeting, so I have an erect penis now.
1: This is Giles Brindley, whom we called up at home in England. He's now 95 years old. And I just feel like we need to pause here, Katie, to talk about how you tracked him down
3: for this podcast interview. Well, it's a long story, but Giles Brindley is not someone easily found on the internet, as I quickly realized. But I did find out that he was part of a choir in London, and so I actually reached out to the choir. They connected me with his neighbor, and his neighbor <laughs> brought him a cell phone to talk with us on. Amazing. Amazing. OK, so anyway, back to Las Vegas, where Dr. Brindley says he never really intended to flash anybody. I wasn't going to show the erect penis.
5: There was no need, it seemed to me. But the chairman thought differently, um, he said, oh, let no, must show the audience.
1: So I did. Are you still there? I am still there. I'm hearing. Yes. Yes. You heard it all. Yes. Oh, so the chairman told you to, and you you showed this to the audience. What do you remember about that moment? What did the audience do? Well,
5: I don't know. Uh, Nothing very much, I think. And I told them I had an erection. They said, oh, they thought, well, there's the erect penis. There's nothing, nothing
1: very
2: strange about it.
1: Dr. Goldstein remembers it differently. Of course, the audience
2: goes nuts and a lot of buzz, a lot of smiling, a lot of laughing, and nobody knows what hell's going on. But in one hour in front of hundreds and hundreds of people, he proved that a drug that causes muscle relaxation caused penile erection, period. End of the conversation. At that point, everybody knew that muscle relaxation is how you got an erection.
1: Is Is it surprising to you that people remember that speech so many years later?
5: No, of course it's not surprising. It's a a very uh, unusual event, uh, but I would expect everybody who saw it to remember it for
3: life. Yeah.
1: (laughs) It is a quite unusual speech to give at a medical convention, I would have to say.
3: (laughs) Dr. Brindley's role in the Viagra story ends here. But he kept on making really useful discoveries. He studied the mechanisms of bladder control for people with spinal cord injuries. He worked on early bionic eyes. And I'd also like to add that just last week, we heard that he is still playing the French horn in a London orchestra.
1: Dr. Goldstein told me that after that 1983 conference, he went right back to his practice in Boston and started telling his patients about what he'd seen.
2: Within a few days, I had men in Boston, self-injected.
1: Suddenly, doctors had another way to medically treat erectile dysfunction, injectable drugs. And it also broke open the mystery of how erections work, which was key for the later development of Viagra. Coming up, we go back across the ocean to hear more about that development and how it almost derailed one scientist's career.
5: You know, this was my best chance of gaining a good reputation. And, you know, if we lost this, then nobody's going to trust my judgment again. Uh, So, yeah, it would have been pretty bad.
1: This is Hard from Death, Sex, and Money. I'm Anna Sale. When chemist David Brown first started working on the drug that would eventually become known as Viagra, It was the mid-80s, and he was leading a team of chemists in the cardiovascular department at Pfizer. After several years of research, they decided to launch a trial of a new drug that might help with reducing chest pain. And he was really excited about it.
5: It seemed to me it had lots of possibilities for treating various diseases. So that's why I was so keen on it. Anyway, so, you know, everything went wrong in the first year.
1: Dr. Brown says the first thing to go wrong was the preliminary safety test. Um, they sent the data back saying it's lethal; it's killed all the animals. <laughs> Bad news. Uh, a
5: good start, you know. I mean, that's the death of a drug, absolutely. But we we were just so skeptical because we had done so much testing ourselves.
1: Now we asked another scientist on Dr. Brown's team about this. He doesn't remember that happening, but according to Dr. Brown, the lab eventually admitted they'd sent back the wrong results. Either way, the problems did not stop there. It
5: was proving difficult. To show the drug worked. And the head of Pfizer Europe said to me, you know, he basically said, you've wasted money for eight years, David. (laughs) We're going to close this in three months if you don't uh, get some good data. I mean, it was, it looked looked as if it was dead.
1: What was that like when you heard that from your bosses? Like, we're going to shut this all down.
2: Yeah,
5: it was pretty hard because, um, you know, most drugs do fail at this stage. The failure rate of new drugs in the clinic is 19 out of 20 fail, 95% fail. Hmm. So the chance of success is actually very low, um, and we accept that. But you only advance your career by being one of those, you know, one out of 20 that, that succeeds.
1: At the time, was, was your wife working?
5: No, no. I mean, yeah, we, we had three teenage children and a big mortgage.
1: <laughs> Dr. Brown needed to show Pfizer that this heart drug could be profitable. And he needed to do it quickly. With time ticking down, he and his team threw a Hail Mary. They set up a study to test bigger doses in healthy volunteers in Wales.
5: In the 1980s, you remember a lot of coal mines were closing around the world. Uh And the men that volunteered were coal miners that were out of work. They just wanted to earn some money. And so with that study... It was, it was an overnight study. They they came in, they were given the drug, and the next morning, the young lady who was running the study gives them a the questionnaire. And then she asks, you know, there's always an open question, you know, in case the questionnaire, questionnaire has missed something, um, anything else you want to report? Did you know something else? And one of the men puts his hand up and says, well, I seem to have a lot of erections all night. <laughs> and all the other men said, yeah, so did we. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah. And uh, fortunately, she didn't ignore that. She came into my office next day and, and told me this. And I must say, she really blushed this deep red. She was so embarrassed. It was one of those sort of things you never forget. And instantly, you know, I went and talked to my two closest colleagues on this. We, we understood why it was working because there'd been science published in the previous couple of years that helped us understand why they should be giving erections.
1: Dr. Brown knew there was a big potential market for this. So he went to the head of clinical research advisor and asked him for money to study the drug's effectiveness at treating erectile dysfunction. He said
5: no. Oh. (laughs) He said no. And it was one of those moments in your life where you don't even think I just his name was David McGivney and he's a very good man by the way I, I, I literally got up and went and closed his office door and said David I'm not leaving this room till you give me the money and I could have got fired for that <laughs> um, but you know he'd said to me right at the beginning of that conversation Look, I, it was only August and my I've already spent all the money for the year. I'm over budget. I'm in trouble. Nobody wants this drug. Why should I give you the money? Anyway, I closed his door, sat down, and he listened. I went through the science and everything else. And he, he did give me the money after an hour. Uh, you know, if he had said no, that, there would have been no Viagra.
1: Dr. Brown's name is on one of the patents for Viagra, also known as sildenafil. Remember, it started out as a cardiovascular drug. It helps with blood flow. And that ended up being the key to its success.
5: What what it does is it amplifies the natural process of dilation of blood vessels in in the penis. So it becomes erect. It doesn't increase um, sex drive. It, It amplifies the sex drive that's there already by acting on the vascular system. It doesn't act in the brain. And then, you know, we took this to Pfizer management. And it literally got every bit of resource it needed from that point onwards. Um, and and then a remarkable thing happened. They took the project away from me. I wasn't allowed to lead it anymore.
1: <laughs> oh, interesting. Why was that?
5: <laughs> well, it was actually, it wasn't explained to me very well. And, and that was the most shocking day in my life. I think I was so depressed. You know, after eight years of struggling through this and suddenly got an absolute big winner and now you can't need it anymore. And they were quite right because once you get to that stage in clinical, it's like a military operation. It has to be led, led by a clinician and the commercial people. It was the right decision, but I just didn't see it coming.
1: <laughs> Did you personally uh, benefit financially?
5: No, because um, when you join pharmaceutical companies, um, employees had to sign away their rights uh, to any compensation um, because the company had funded the research. So directly, no, I got nothing from it. Um, but, you know, it didn't exactly do my career any harm.
1: And you left the company before Viagra came out to market, right?
2: Yeah,
5: Glaxo approached me just when they bought Welcome and became Glaxo Welcome in 1995. And their research head kept traveling down to uh, Canterbury where I was living. And I didn't want to leave, but, you know, he kind of doubled my salary, offered me a big red Jaguar, gave me (laughs) loads of share options, gave me whatever I wanted to to go, basically. And so in the end, I did.
1: (laughs) Um, I feel very glad that after uh, helping to invent Viagra, you may not have made any money off of that, but you got a fancy red car. That feels appropriate. (laughs) (laughs)
5: <laughs> oh, that that was back then. No, I'm on my fourth Jaguar there. I love the cars.
1: <laughs> Coming up, Viagra hits the market. But who it's being marketed to and what it's for starts to shift.
2: Who'd you expect? Bob Dole? Follow Mark Martin and the Viagra racing team this season.
1: This is Hard from Death, Sex, and Money. I'm Anna Sale. In the weeks following Viagra's FDA approval in the spring of 1998, media outlets from the Washington Post to Wired reported that doctors were writing between 15 and 40,000 Viagra prescriptions a day. By July, Pfizer reported that approximately 2.7 million prescriptions had been written, the most ever for any drug in its first quarter. Sales were over $400 million. There was a lot of initial hype around this drug.
6: It was exciting, I'd have to say, um, back then to know that you were doing something that was adding to somebody's quality of life.
1: Dr. Carol Bennett was seeing patients as the chief urologist at the West Los Angeles VA at the time, and she started to notice a familiar pattern happening in her office.
6: You know, you have a patient come to see you for, I need some help with my urination. So you go through everything and you spend 20 minutes, you examine them, you do, you know, you we prescribe the medicine. You say, hey, Mr. Jones, we'll see you back in three months. This is, should work fine for you." And then he gets to the door. Every last time, it used to be every last time the patient would get to the door, not open the door, but just put his hand on the door handle and say, "Doc, one more thing." And that one more thing was never anything else besides erectile dysfunction. They were almost like, "Should I? Should I? Should I? Should I?" You could almost see you'd almost hear it, you know. They'd they come to the urologist, they heard the urologist might have something that might help them with their function, and they wanted to make sure that that got
1: discussed. One way that patients knew about Viagra was because, for the first time, Pfizer was telling them about it directly, something marketing executive Dorothy Wetzel played a big part in. Before Viagra, she worked on bladder medication, fertility products, and the today's sponge, the contraceptive.
6: I'd like to describe myself as a below-the-belt marketer.
1: (laughs) When Viagra was approved, Dorothy was running the consumer marketing department at Pfizer. The FDA had eased restrictions on pharmaceutical companies advertising prescription drugs directly to consumers a year before, in 1997. And Pfizer knew this was a big opportunity.
6: No one knew what drugs were made by what what company. And pharmaceutical companies were kind of under the radar. Um, And so Viagra was going to be the first drug that was going to put Pfizer on the map because, you know, any drug that has to do with sex gets a lot of um, attention and has a cultural relevance. For example, you know, when birth control pills came out, it wasn't just another drug. It was freedom for women. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when when Viagra came out, it was permission for um, men to to talk about sex and to talk about issues with sex.
1: I just think you had the most interesting position in the moment that Viagra was coming to market. Like, you had to translate the science to a public and a set of kind of cultural expectations about how we talk about sex and erectile dysfunction. And you had to, and you were talking directly to the people you wanted to buy in.
6: Oh, yeah. I mean, for example, Viagra is a a product that um, addresses a medical condition but it has tremendous impact on people's relationships. So there was a big tension between, you know, is this a medical, is this a product that uh, addresses a medical issue, or is this a lifestyle issue?
1: That first commercial with Bob Dole definitely kept the focus on Viagra as a solution for a medical problem. But within a few years, Dorothy and her team decided to pivot.
6: When we changed the strategy from being about, you know, courage and being about um, taking care of a problem. I I was involved in one uh, strategy that involved um, reminding men that um, sometimes they miss the power of their youth when they had more um, sexual ability. So we come up with a campaign that was a little edgy um, because it shows people, you know, one showed a man and a woman shopping. And all of a sudden he sees a dress and he starts thinking of sex and then these little devil ears um come up behind his his head and um so what i did was and we knew that was going to be controversial Um, so we talked to some women's groups but i personally went to my minister (laughs) oh really yeah i showed him i showed him the print ad because i wanted to get an idea of was this going to be so offensive to people i mean the idea was to Talk about uh a relationship between a man and a woman when they're kind of rekindling the joy of their relationship, which includes sex. And that's what we were trying to capture. And I wanted to make sure that that's what was coming through the ad, um as opposed to, you know, this guy's a lech.
1: Uh-huh. So a creep, deviant somehow. Yeah. yeah.
6: yeah. His, his his uh exact words to me were something. Like, as long as the guy's looking at her lovingly and not leeringly, um, I think this makes sense.
1: Your minister said that?
6: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, Presbyterians are kind of uh, liberal.
1: (laughs) And um, help me understand what was the context for wanting to update the campaign. Um, What what, when you were kind of reframing the strategy, why were you doing that?
6: Oh, uh, We were reframing the strategy to talk about Viagra more in a sexual context, because at that point, there was a lot of different competition and our growth had slowed. Uh-huh. And we wanted to broaden the target audience or broaden the market beyond just those who had um, identifiable medical conditions. So like if you had diabetes or high blood pressure, there's certain, or, or prostate cancer, there are certain conditions where ED happens, um, specifically. And then there's just, as you age, um, men often, some men get ED that's not specifically attached to, you know, a, a serious disease. So we wanted to expand the market beyond just those people with a medical condition and Viagra being the solution for a medical condition to um, you want better sex, Viagra is a way to have better sex. So there's been an evolution in its messaging over time.
1: Pfizer went on to make billions off of Viagra. Sales peaked 10 years ago, when Viagra brought in more than $2 billion in 2012 alone. But that marketing strategy of expanding who and what Viagra is for was controversial. The FDA quickly pulled those devil-horn ads for making unsubstantiated claims about providing a, quote, return to a previous level of sexual desire and activity. And in 2007, the AIDS Healthcare Foundation sued Pfizer, claiming that their ads promoted recreational use of the drug, which they said could lead to an uptick in unsafe sex and HIV infections. on the next episode in our series. I think that if men had
3: more realistic expectations for their penises, we'd have a lot less distress.
1: We hear from people for whom Viagra opened up a deeper conversation about their bodies and what it means to have good sex.
2: Like I would sometimes say, oh yeah, my dick's got a bit of a personality of its own.
1: It is definitely a loss, but they have to
6: learn other ways.
2: I have so much sex right now that does not include me having an erect penis. And it's just really fucking fantastic.
1: This series was produced by Katie Bishop. Andrew Dunn composed the music. Alex Barron provided additional editing. The rest of our team includes Affie Duke and Emily Botine. Special thanks to Caitlin Pierce. Our intern is Gabriella Santana. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported podcast. Make a contribution today at deathsexmoney.org donate. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC.
0: Thanks for listening to the Podcast Extra. You can join us for the big show this Friday, where we'll be talking about our much maligned cousin, the Neanderthal, and how these distant ancestors can help us understand what it means to be human. I'm Brooke Gladstone.